Welcome to Cinema Bushido. This episode, we're talking about the 1985 Arnie flick, Commando, directed by Mark Lester. Uh, with me is the man who puts the fruit in fruit salad, Mr. Lee Van Cleef. How's it going, Lee? Hey, buddy. Every day's a holiday. How are you doing today? Good. Every, every day's a holiday. Um, and with us is a special guest, uh, author, editor, podcaster, and overall film geek, Timon Singh. How's it going, Timon? Really good. Thanks for having me on, guys. Absolutely. Well, um, we're going to start uh, this a little bit differently, uh, this episode. We're going to talk about your uh, latest creation, Born to be Bad, talking to the greatest villains in action cinema. Um, I, I guess right out the gate, what attracted you to uh, interviewing the bad guys? I think it's because everyone knows about the heroes or the actors that play the heroes. We all know about Arnie. We all know about Stallone. So much has been written about these actors over the years that as a fan of action films, I felt that there was nothing really there that most of us didn't already know. And the problem is when you're interviewing actors like that, you don't so much have to contend with them, but as their many agents and publicists who probably don't want them saying anything too interesting and want them to kind of adhere to their brand and how they're seen. Um, but I was watching uh, Robocop for like the 500th time and I was just kind of struck by all the actors in it who play the bad guys and how they weren't the uh, typical actors that you would think to star in a sci-fi action film and it just got me thinking about all the actors that have played bad guys over the years and you know how they ended up in these roles whether it was something that kind of appealed to them or whether it was something that ended up being like a drag on their career because people just saw them as villains and so that night after I saw Robocop I cycled home I wrote down a list of actors names that when I thought of action movie villains came to mind and essentially I just started calling them that's terrific. And I think you bring up a great one with RoboCop because it's so bad guy heavy. <laughs> yeah, there's like five, six main actors who are all playing bad guys and they're all really diverse and all really different. Yeah. And I think most of them, you'd never think to cast them as as villains. And I think that was definitely the case with uh, Ronnie Cox, who up to that point was mostly known as either drew in deliverance or he had played military and police officer types like in taps and beverly hills cop yeah yeah he stinks uh, of like a police you know cia he just has the look exactly you know straight laced by the book i think he's also played the president of the united states about three times <laughs> so exactly he's not the kind of person that you would cast as a villain so he was a kind of actor that I wanted to track down and kind of go, you know, was it something fun? You know, how did you end up being cast as a bad guy? And, and what do you, what did you think of the whole experience? Cool. Okay. Well then uh, next up, which one was your favorite interview? Uh, one of, actually, coincidentally, one of the uh, actors we'll probably end up talking about today uh, was Vernon Wells. Mm -hmm. He was actually the first person I ended up interviewing for the book. He, uh, he pretty much said yes straight away, gave me his phone number. And when I called him, he had just got back from a weekend at a wolf conservation uh, project. He's very heavy into wolf conservation. And he was really uh, open and forthcoming and was so friendly. And we just talked about films like uh, Mad Max 2 or The Road Warrior, as you call it in the United States, um, Commando, Inner Space. And he was such a laugh that it kind of uh it, it was a good first interview to have because he was so friendly 
his story his story was really interesting too um you know the way uh somebody else had gotten booted out of the production and he was pulled in um commando's always been an odd movie for me because i was thought he was kind of a weak looking bad guy compared to arnold um but it's interesting to see how the gears in the background worked on that so yeah a really cool interview yeah so what he told me was he was brought in very late in the game because the actor who was originally cast as bennett uh arnold thought that he wasn't intimidating enough and apparently was a bit of a method actor and that just didn't work for arnold so they recast and brought in Vernon Wells. So all the costume and everything was already in place. So Vernon had to essentially put his r- much larger frame into the outfit for a much more slender man. That's probably why it, it's not the most flattering look. Um, but it's interesting that you say you didn't think that he was more of a physical threat compared to Arnie. Because, you know, that's why they brought him in. People, uh, the producers, Joel Silver... And Arnold were were looking for an actor that could match him toe to toe in terms of the the action. And Vernon's quite a big guy. I mean, Arnold's you know a massive guy, and most people next to him don't look as big. But I think Vernon is uh, pretty intimidating. You've only got to see him in films like The Road Warrior to realize that. Yeah, yeah, and that's I think what I discovered over time. I think maybe it's the uh, Freddie Mercury stash, or it could just be the costume with the fake chainmail. There's something about it that makes me think of Police Academy, and every time they cut to that um, that gay bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the well, the, is... the outfit was something we definitely did talk about, and he's very much aware of the Butch-Freddie Mercury comparisons. <laughs> All right, well, cool. Um, who, I wanted to know, uh, yeah, who was slatted to be in your book, but it didn't work out? Um, so there were a few names that I wanted to get. Um, Kurtwood Smith, who plays uh, Clarence Bodiger in uh, Robocop, I wanted, but that man is always working and we just couldn't make it work. Um, I also wanted to interviews, uh, interview Powers Booth, who plays, uh, who's the villain in Sudden Death with Jean-Claude Van Damme, and he's been in so many Walter Hill films and he's in Tombstone, but tragically he, uh, he died before I could interview him. Mm. Uh, his agent said that he would be very up for it. And then tragically, uh, he, he fell ill very quickly and passed away. Um, but there, there were lots of actors I had on the list. Some, it was a matter of scheduling others, you know, didn't really want to do it. And then I had two that wanted gratuitous amounts of money. (laughs) For call, the interview. We call that the Bolo Young effect. I think any time Bolo shows up, it's only because somebody's thrown a couple thousand dollars at him. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say that Bolo Young was one of those actors, but he quite possibly could have been one of those <laughs> actors. Oh, that's hilarious. How funny. Okay, well, that's cool. Um, I wanted to know what bad guy that's passed away would have been your top choice to interview. Alan Rickman. Yeah, I, I had a feeling that was going to be the answer. Because it's it, the next question I have for you is, when I say bad guy, who pops into your head first? It, I mean, Alan Rickman. there's a whole <laughs> section in the book dedicated to the terrorists in Die Hard. And I think, to a certain extent, many British actors who are cast as bad guys in Hollywood action films are constantly uh, having to play catch-up or reference Alan Rickman's performance in Die Hard. And... He's not just really charismatic and charming and arguably much more interesting than John McClane, but it was Alan Rickman's first film. 
And that's what's more astounding. This was a big Hollywood production. He just kind of came in with his British stage actor sensibilities and just blew everyone away. He, there's a story that Stephen E. D'Souza tells. Um, he wrote Die Hard and was also kind enough to write the foreword for my book. And he also wrote Commando. But he said that uh, Hans Gruber in the film was meant to come in looking like all the other terrorists, you know, with a bandolier and guns and everything. And Alan, who apparently was not a big fan of guns, was like, uh, no, I think I should just come in wearing a suit. You know, I'm I'm not going to get my hands dirty. This isn't what Hans Gruber does. That's why he has all these guys. I'm just going to look great yeah. and, and do it that way. And everyone kind of, yeah, no, why not? That's That's the way to go. Nice. All right. Well, then, um, the last thing I was going to ask, and this is a tough question, and you may not want to answer it because, I mean, Volume Two, I'm sure will be will be coming at us at one point. But who do you think the lamest bad guy is? Somebody, the lamest, yeah, bad guy. somebody that just did not uh, didn't fill the the shoes of what you thought the, the big bad in in a particular movie should be. Wow. Okay. I'm re- I've really got to think now. Um terms of 80s action films i want to kind of keep it 80s or 90s because otherwise we could just stray off into all certain you know different territories yeah Um, i just throw hayden christensen under the bus and be done with it but yeah no i'm thinking yeah i'm thinking the 80s okay uh let's oh let's think while i while i think about this throw me out who who comes to mind when you think of a terrible bad guy Oh, gosh. Um, that's easy for me. It's Michael Ironsides uh, as the bad guy in Highlander 2. Okay. Following on the heels of the Kurgan, it was like, really? This is who he's fighting now? And this is the guy we're supposed to be scared of? I love Michael Ironside, and yeah. he was actually one actor that I did try and get an interview with. Same with Clancy Brown, who plays the Kurgan. Ugh. But. Clancy, I think, had literally just done a year of interviews to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Highland, Highlander. And uh, Michael Ironsides doesn't really do many interviews these days, so I was told. So unfortunately, I couldn't get to talk to them. But uh, in terms of bad guys, I think it's probably... Um, I don't know what his name is. He plays the Russian general in Rambo 3. <laughs> right. And... He's so forgettable. He kind of looks like, um, oh, who's the actor that plays Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs and was in right. the latest classic this, world? world the weird scranny dude. Yeah, he, he kind of looks like Ted Levine. He kind of looks like Ted Levine, but he's not as good an actor <laughs> as Ted Levine. He's just instantly forgettable. And because of that, whenever I'm thinking of Rambo 3, I always think Stephen Burkhoff's in it, even though he's not. That was Rambo uh, First Blood Part 2. So I think I'm going to go with the guy in Rambo 3 because for such a big, overblown action movie, I can never remember who the bad guy is in that. And that's that's a major problem for a, a big action film if you can't even remember who the bad guy is. And it looks like if we're talking about the right guy, this would be Colonel Alexei Zayson. And it's yeah. actually a Frenchman. His name is Marc de Jong, and he's mostly been in French films. So that would make sense. That sounds like a bad casting for a Russian. Yeah, Russian. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure once I sit down and watch it again, 
he's fine, <laughs> but just nothing sticks out. You could have got like a really good British actor to just kind of ham it up to the nines. I'm thinking like an early nineties Ian McKellen would be great. Totally. You know, someone like that, someone who can just really dial it up to 11 if you want. I mean, it's a Rambo film. You're not looking for subtlety. Uh, <laughs> You know, a Charles dance, someone like that. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I think that's that's the one I'd go to simply for being completely unforgettable. And I'm sure he's never done anything noteworthy since. Yeah. Yeah. He followed it up uh, with uh, it looks like he just stayed in France after that. He's like, this sucks. Thanks, guys. Yeah, this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. So um, great book. Super interesting to get the goods from these really really interesting, hardworking actors. And to hear, you know, I mean, in most of the interviews you you um, you did, they say, you know, you, you ask them about the bad guy thing and, and they're all, it's more of the answer of like, I want whatever work. And sometimes the bad guys are just really interesting people to play. There's subtlety to it and stuff. We see them as bad guys out of the gate because, you know, we were there to see our, our superheroes. But, uh, you know, a really good bad guy is somebody who's acting you know, their, their heart out. So really cool. Yeah. I, I think the best bad guys are someone who you can really see their point of view. And uh, I think as, as one actor said, you know, the, the villains are always the hero of their own story. And I feel in many uh, action films, the villains are really underserviced, but that's kind of changed recently. I think with black Panther and infinity war, I thought the, bad guys in those were really well mm -hmm. defined and you could totally get their perspective and why they were doing what they were doing and i think the the quote that i start at the beginning of my book with is one from alan rickman where he said i don't play villains i play interesting people mm -hmm. and that that's kind of what i always take away from these interviews and what the actors want to do they don't see them as just playing bad guys it's just kind of like they are the hero of their own story. It's just Bruce Willis has got in the way and ruined their day. <laughs> totally. Uh, well said, well said. Okay, so Born to be Bad, talking to the greatest villains in action cinema. Um, I saw it out on Amazon if you want to buy it electronically. Uh, there's paperbacks and Barnes & Noble and Amazon and everywhere else. So check it out, guys. Um, okay, on to Commando. You suggested this, so I'm going to ask this question. I always start the podcast this way, but... Um, yeah, so what made you think I want to do Commando? And like, what is it to you? What, is, what does Commando do to you? So Commando, for me, is one of those defining films. Because when I was growing up, when I was about 12 or 13, I used to always stay around uh, uh, at the house of my school friend, Mike. And Mike had a great VHS collection. And it would be filled with all these violent films I had never seen before like Mad Max 2, The Running Man, Commando. And every time I went around there, I would uh, be introduced to a new awesome action film that I'd never seen before. And Commando just sticks out in my mind as one of those defining films because I think at that time I mainly knew Arnie from the Terminator films because by that point Terminator 2 had come out and it was everywhere. He was the biggest star in the world. But I hadn't seen those earlier action films. So when Mike first showed me Commando, um, from the get-go, as soon as Arnie walks round the corner with a tree on his shoulder, you know this isn't the most <laughs> serious film in the world. And it's played with its tongue fairly in cheek. 
and it's so much fun. Uh, and because of that, when I was writing uh, my book, I ended up interviewing three of the actors that are in it. And uh, I think because of that, it has so many tropes of 80s action films that, for better or worse, uh, are, are tropes that I love from the one-man army gunning down an army of bad guys and not getting hit once to a big power ballad over the end credits <laughs> to a slight homoerotic undertone between the hero and the bad guy, which I'm always a big fan of. Um, yeah, I, I think Commando has everything. I love it. Uh, hey, Lee, it's your turn. <laughs> Tell me what you... I kind of feel like you uh, you share some of the... That uh, historical love of this. So, yeah, give me the goods. Yeah, this had an indelible impact on me as a child. I had a uh, VHS copy of it with the handwritten label nice. with two other movies, you know. And uh, from, I'd say, 88 to 94, I routinely watched that on our Radio Corporation of America VCR. Um, it's just the most Arniest of all Arnie movies. And every, it's like you said, it starts out that way, it ends that way. There's nothing in between that's just not full-blown Arnie. Uh, he's magnificent looking. He's at his peak, and the movie just plays to it beautifully. And there's it's full of one-liners and great action, and it never gets boring. And it's a movie that I hadn't seen it in 24 years, and I knew every scene in my head had been burned into my brain, mm. uh, probably taking up valuable space from other things in my childhood. But I mean, and I mean, I saw this as like a five-year-old kid. I was really impressionable, and it just. It it just it's that's it sets the tone in my mind for an action movie and it's just one of my favorites of all time. I think it's telling how strong Commando is in everyone's minds that the sheer amount of alcohol you drink didn't wash away any of those lines. <laughs> no, I mean I I, t- I mean for years and years I could just picture it in my head when he drops Sully off the cliff, mm-hmm. you know, and then he gets in the the Porsche, and then when they drive away, the Porsche is clean. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so this does start out really well. It starts out, it's setting the stage of what kind of movie we're going to get. It's, it, I don't remember the situation. Dude's going out to take the trash out, and Bill Duke and his cohort are back in the trash truck up, and for some reason they don't have their faces covered. But then Bill Duke just takes the thing cover off his face, so there's really no point in having it. And then they machine gun the shit out of him. Not just one bullet, not just two bullets, uh, you know, like a nice 50 yeah, just make the, make the point. Hit it home. This is the kind of movie you're about to see. Exactly. Yeah, it's not subtle. The way they're taking out these former special ops soldiers is uh, is as unsubtle as you can get, and it <laughs> sets the tone for for the entire movie, where subtlety is not going to be a part of this film. Um, and I, I think the cartoon level of violence. Uh, was a big factor in why I embraced this film when I was young, because growing up, I was actually a little bit squeamish for violence. I remember my dad watching Predator, me walking into the room where Bill Duke's head explodes and just doing a complete 180 and walking out going, nope, nope, this is, nope, not for me. (laughs) And I remember uh, it was Christmas and the entire family was watching Monty Python and the Holy Grail. And I must have been about eight and it was during the Black Knight scene where he's having all his limbs lopped off. And while that scene is hilarious, it completely went over my head. And I remember feeling really squeamish about all the blood. <laughs> but somewhere along the line, uh, the line, and I'm thinking it's due to Commando, I just embraced the cartoon level of violence. And I think 
because of Arnie delivering like a humorous one-liner with every person he kills. I think this is what it made me embrace violent action films, and for that, I'll always be grateful. Yeah, you know what you're saying is it's like a gateway drug to further on gore. Like at this point, you're like, ah, this throw on postal. Yeah, I'm, I, yeah, I meant hostile, but yeah, it's still on hostile. I, I want to watch some people get dissected. You know, <laughs> I've had my command. I've had my commando. Commando is Looney Tunes for adults. You have Arnie jumping out of a plane as it's taking off and not hurting himself at all. And he's in the back of a truck that's hit by a rocket launcher and he just gets out completely unscathed. This isn't this is a film where physics doesn't apply. It's uh, in many ways a precursor to the Fast and Furious films. (laughs) Totally. Well, I love the intro to this. Um, so we get that stuff, you know, uh, we get introduced to Vernon Wells because he's out there massaging guys on the boat. But then we get to the best opening sequence ever. It's <laughs> Arnold and Alyssa Milano feeding the deer, um, having <laughs> ice cream. I mean, it was like a setup of an 80s sitcom. It's wonderful. that it's, It has everything you need to know about their father-daughter relationship. He loves her. They go for ice cream. He loves nature. He's teaching her how to drive someone's nose into their brain. It's it, it's wonderful and touching, and I think it's something that every father and daughter relationship should aspire to. I can I couldn't see Alyssa Milano the same way after a previous episode with C one thirty where you had you were talking about how hot she was in that movie. I mean, we were like, she's obviously you meant that she would grow up to be hot. But you, it, you, we were just like, dude, she's a kid. I just couldn't, I just couldn't stop cracking up throughout the whole movie. So you ruined that for me. You're such her. an asshole. Yeah. I saw that when I was her age. So come on, damn it, you guys! I, did, <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. Oh, it was beautiful. But yeah, I love the intro. I love the fact that it's got like that really daunting music, and then it's got like it just totally switches tone, and they're like playing in the pool and stuff, and <laughs> having a good time, like. Look, he's he's killed people all over the world, and he can he still loves his daughter. And you're like, oh, it's beautiful. Yeah, I like um, I like that. I didn't notice until this time. Um, poor Alyssa Milano's character doesn't get a wardrobe change the whole fucking movie. Because I was <laughs> I was like watching it a second time, and I get to this the intro, and I'm like, holy shit! It's like she became an object. Like she became just this this picture of the overalls and the stripy shirt. And that's all you're going to see for the rest of the time. That's the thing that he needs to to save, not an actual human. Exactly. It's just her and those dungarees for 90 <laughs> minutes. I love it. I love it. Okay. So um, we have our intro. Shit hits the fan right away. Um, you know, he made some promises. They go ahead and kidnap her. I think the next scene with the blazer was just fabulous. Oh wait! Before that, before that, like he's like he's like holding the little heart, and then he's like, "Listen, we got to negotiate. You know, we got to talk about this." He's like, "Wrong!" And then just guns him down with his HK, just like, "Boom! You fucking moron! I'm fucking John Matrix!" And then and then he's like, he sees them going down the hill, and he opens up the 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 Chevy uh, the bonnet, as you guys say over there across the pond. And uh, why they're just why, random wires, probably from like a distributor. So there's some wires, and he's like, "Oh, he just throws it in there." And then you're like, "What is he gonna do?" As a kid, you're like, "What are you gonna do, Arnie?" And he fucking just opens up the door. He throws his gun in. He opens up the door and he starts fucking pushing this thing in neutral down the fucking hill. It was amazing. I think we should also mention where his former commanding officer shows up, 
and he just creeps up behind him and he's greeted <laughs> with the compliment, smooth and silent like always, John. And not just that, during the ambush scene, he tells the soldier to stay downwind. And the soldier goes, what, am I going to smell him? And Matrix goes, I did. <laughs> it's just like, right off the bat, you're setting Matrix up to be a super soldier that can smell bad guys in the wind. That's how good he is. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I wanted to say, uh, they did the truck thing a second time with Predator, remember? Because the whole point is that he's such a huge dude. And in, in Predator, there's a part where like a truck is being used as a generator or something, and he has to lift the rear of it up to drop it on the ground to blow some people up. So it's the same idea, just pushing the truck. He's, he's, a, he's a truck whisperer. <laughs> All right. Um, so, yeah, then we have the funniest thing. So I guess the, the setup of the plot here is that they're going to kidnap his daughter and he has to go do a thing. So um, they put him on an airplane with this big dude and they pretty much are like, OK, so he, he knows he has like 10 hours to to get out of the plane, go save his daughter and kill everybody. So it's kind of an interesting setup in that way. But yeah, so he kills this dude right away on the plane, which I thought was hilarious. Put the little, you know, um, hat on his face so people couldn't tell. And then you said it already. He jumps out of a plane into, I, I, I they in Florida? With those, I just, I don't know what, what he fell into, but it must have been soft as a cloud. Yeah, it looks like he falls into the marshlands mm-hmm. and then... He looks at his watch with the power and intensity of like five suns as if it, he's trying to burn a message into it or he, he's trying to figure out how to tell the time. I can never tell. You know, what it's it, really intense. You know what it was? It was probably that, you know, like most of those big roided out dudes, he's really bad with math. And he's like, OK, what's eight hours from two o'clock? Hold the other one. Yeah. The, the the best part is like that intense stare he does it like right before he pushes the the Chevy down the hill he stare he's staring like as they're as as he's boarding the plane he's staring as they're closing the door he's like stewardess he's like he's, he's like don't wake up my friend he's dead tired Classic and then line. yeah perfect line and then he like goes into he goes into the elevator shaft down to the cargo he's staring he's like he's just he's one track mind. I love that about this character. We should also point out that what, uh, Chelsea Field stars as the stewardess on the airliner, and she would go on to play Bruce Willis's wife in The Last Boy Scout, and also Teela in Masters of the Universe. Oh. So it's always good to kind of just spot her. And apparently, she's married to Scott Bakula these days oh. of Quantum Leap fame. That's awesome. Um, and I didn't, I did not know that. The trivia for all of you. Yes. Thank you. I love trivia. <laughs> hey, Ghost, Ghost can, I, can I ask you a question? Of course. Who's Scott Bakula? Um, he's the main quantum, quantum leap guy. Yeah. I, don't, I never saw it. He's, you know, he looks in the mirror and it's somebody else's face. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know the, okay, Captain Archer. Captain Archer, yeah. Yeah, that's uh-huh. his appropriate name. Okay, Just had to gotcha. throw some Star Trek your way. Yes. Okay. So um, not going exactly play by play. What is our next ultimate scene? So he jumps out, jumps on a fire truck. He's going, uh, oh, God. Yeah, he meets uh, Radon Chong. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, we meet Radon Chong um, getting heavily and violently come onto by uh, David Patrick Kelly's Sully, <laughs> who is a 
fascinating figure. He's a small sex pest, essentially, who uh, basically spends most of the first half of the film leering at Ray Dawn Chon and making horrible comments about what he's going to do to Arnie's daughter. <laughs> so you are just itching for him to die. And uh, it, when they're dropping Arnie off at the airport, Arnie delivers that uh, immortal line, I like you, Sully, I'm going to kill you last, which will have its payoff later in the film. But when I spoke to David Patrick Kelly, he, he was just very amused by the character. So he, he had a lot of fun with it. They, they don't mess around in this. There's a line somewhere in it where um, they're threatening the little girl again. And it's just a one-off character, but he's like, little girl's throats, I, they, they cut like butter or something like that. Yeah, like, really? like a knife through warm butter. Yeah, I'm like, so that's the way we're talking about this. Like, this little human being is absolute garbage that we're going to think about different ways to chop up. Well, in their defense, I mean, Che Guevara did say, a revolutionary must become a cold killing machine motivated by pure hate. Mm-hmm. I like it. Oh, I, I, I love it. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I do. I, I wanted to bring up your interview with David Patrick Kelly. I, um, I mean, I first saw him in Warriors, like everybody else did. But I have a major association with uh, Dreamscape, so I'm glad you brought that up with him. Um, yeah. And I, I like to hear his his take on that because it was a really odd role. But I mean, it's obviously my age when it came out. I, I like saw it in the theater. So him transforming into the snake and controlling dreams. It was so freaking cool to me. Yeah, David Patrick Kelly's one of those actors who I saw in so many films growing up, but because he looked so different in all of them, and because it was a time before IMDb, it was a long time before I realized it was the same actor. So I knew him from Warriors, I knew him from The Crow, and I knew him from Commando, but it was a long time before, probably late in my teens, until it finally clicked that it was, you know, the same guy. No, and, that's uh, a great point. Because I think I don't... When I saw Dreamscape, I didn't realize that that was the Warriors guy. Yeah. Right. Just he's, He really does transform. For somebody who has such... Uh, he's, he's such a small guy with such a distinctive face, you'd think he'd always be the same guy. But now he really knows how to, how to become that character. And in real life, he's completely different. He couldn't be nicer when... I was interviewing, we spent like the first 15 minutes just kind of chatting and talking about his love of Lord of the Rings. It was insane. Uh, We spoke for like two and a half hours. The interview in the book (laughs) is so heavily edited down. He will just go off on a tangent and just start talking about everything. He was absolutely lovely. That's awesome. Um, All right, so we, uh, I I wanted to throw out that he meets Ray Dunchan, and for some reason he has to rip the seat out of the little car. So he can't be seen. Oh, is that why? Because he can't duck oh, when there's a whole you, you guys missed it, man. The most violently offensive thing about Sully is his wardrobe. <laughs> that was just like... I, I, that was the only thing I probably blanked on all these years. I, and for good measure, because when I saw that, I, I was like, whoa. That, that Can you believe that was actually fashion at some point? <laughs> what was he How wearing? cocaine. He was like this really like loud uh, suit with like a... <laughs> A teal kind of t- a shirt and a and a really loud teal and black and white tie with like these really loud shoes. It was and it was all like way too big for him. It hadn't been like hemmed in at all. It was it was unbelievably bad. 
I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that they that they put um put that on a movie. But then I was like, what year was this? And I looked it up. I was like, nineteen eighty five. Holy shit, man! That was a bad year for fucking clothes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, gosh, people, you know, in the eighties were an interesting time, yeah, for fashion. Okay, so um, yes, <laughs> uh, yanked the seat out of the car so he could he could somehow hide. I just thought that was so freaking ridiculous. I just loved. I'd love to see that in the script. And like, I think it's another one of those things that Arnold does. He insists on showing how strong he is. I mean, you know what kind of muscles it would take to rip a freaking seat out of a car? It's the same core muscles that when said car hits a tree later means he barely moves. <laughs> totally. It's just it's just good upper body development. That's what it is. All right, All right so we go to the mall, and we're going to have a mall battle. Um, and I think, were those armed guards <laughs> at the mall? The Renapigs? Yeah. No, well, they had like batons, oh, I think. Okay. But there was cop. It was intermixed with cops, okay. but they had badass-looking '80s radios. Yeah, they looked like they could get like a signal from outer space on those motherfuckers. They were like, "Held the guys like one watch me kick some ass," and he pulls out this giant silver black brick. I was like, "Dude, that's impressive." All right, well, I think <laughs> we're just about to the point where he's going to kill the first person. And we always what we do in these in in our cinema Bushido episodes is everybody's going to get to um, call out some of their favorite scenes. So I'm going to pause and let um, I'm going to let Ty go first. Um, give us your favorite scene of this movie, and you're probably going to be able to pick two. In fact, yeah, we're going to have two total. So pick your first favorite scene, and then Lee, I want to know what yours is right after. Okay, my first, I have, I have two scenes that always come into mind, and this could, I think it's going to be the uh, UK-American divide here. Ooh. So, in the UK, there was one scene that was kind of cut out of Commando, and it's later when he's on the grounds of the villa, and it's when he hides in the garden shed, and they come in, and he throws the bladed discs at them, scalping one, stabs another in the chest with a garden fork and then cuts the arm off another guy and then hits him in the face with his own hand. That was cut out of UK versions, I think, until we got the director's cut DVD here maybe about eight years ago. And because of that, whenever I see it, it's always like something so new and exciting that kind of sticks in my mind. You son of a bitch. He just, yeah. he just ripped that scene out of my cold dead hands. God, yeah, I'm it's so talking. good. It's so good. The scalping, and then he has the machete, and he takes the guy's arm off. It's it's when we finally go over the top because we hadn't yet really. We went like into full uh, animation mode. It was hilarious. That's hilarious that they that they censored that across the pond. They would do weird stuff. I told you you couldn't have um, like ninja stars. Ninja stars. <laughs> yeah, it was nunchucks. Nunchucks were heavily <laughs> edited out of films. Uh, probably until the early 2000s when Hong Kong Legends kind of re-released all of Bruce Lee's films and then we kind of got them uncut. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, like Ninja Turtle films were cut simply because of the use of nunchucks. It was ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> all right, like, give me your first favorite scene. Well, thankfully he didn't get to steal it because it's the greatest scene in cinematic history. So he's like, we're going to go shopping. And then they cut to him like stealing an earth mover and crashing it into an army surplus store. <laughs> and then he's just loading up his cart full of, like, gear uh, to to get wet, right? 
And then he like magically just knows that there's going to be a button. And if he just hits it, he's going to open up to where this guy's real guns are. And the, the only way I can describe this is that like when he opens it up and they pan around, there are weapons on the walls. I didn't even know what they are. And when he pans around like that, it's like the anarcho-capitalist wet dream of a liquor store or, or like a, a, of a gun store, right? Like everything is there. It, I mean, all you really needed was like suitcase nukes and then little baby suitcase nukes with SpongeBob on them for the kids. I mean, it was like the most impressive array of armament I've ever seen in a movie to this day. And that has always stuck with me. And then he's just like, they even put a detonator on a claymore. They just didn't. They were like, bro, <laughs> everything is on today. Like, what other movie has the M202 been focused in? And yet, it's like, how could you forget about it? Like, right. he's like, rocket launcher. <laughs> 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 I, like the, I like how there were grenades just sitting there like, yeah. on a glass shelf. So you can just kind of grab yeah. them. It's like, a, it's like a, you know, a buffet. How many knives do you need to steal, Arnie? How many knives? <laughs> it was just it was just so glorious. And then he's about to get out and they catch him. I'm like, dude, how long were you there for? Like 45 <laughs> minutes to an hour? I like how like, they walked just him out. No cuffs, no nothing. Yeah. Just kind of yeah. walking behind him, going and get in the back of the van. Yeah, they're lucky they didn't get shot. Right? That was actually going to be my second scene. Simply because when that happens and there's all those guns... For a, a UK audience member, it's just kind of like, of course, this is why America has such gun violence. Look at these fucking guns. <laughs> How can you just buy these on the street? What is wrong with this country? Why does anyone need those kind of guns in their home? And I'm sure I've upset a few of your listeners that might be going, well, home protection. How yeah. can you buy a rocket launcher? That is ridiculous. You do not need any of those guns. And that is why... I think for UK audiences, Commando has that whole, it's like a live action cartoon because it's so over the top. But unfortunately, you apparently can seem to get half of those guns on your uh, in your army no, surplus stores. You, you couldn't. That's the kind of the drawback of it is like uh, anything that's military use, like basically, like, for instance, what separates like an M16, which you see in this, like the, especially the A2 models versus like. They, there is an AR-15. Like, there's some AR-15s used by the guards uh, for Kirby, I think, the general. But the okay. difference is, is like, they're, without getting too much into detail, the firing mechanism is built in a certain way, so you can't, like, you can't have an automatic weapon. Mm -hmm. And you can't just turn it into an automatic weapon. So they limit that. But, like, the whole point is that it's, like, grotesque Americana at its most glorious and beautiful. It was, it's just, <laughs> like... You just you're just never gonna get something so like I mean like even Arnie's character when they first go in is like and he's like this hardened killer who's traveled the world and killed for the empire and kind of regrets it and his daughter's been kidnapped because of it and even this man has it stops for a second and goes when his eyes widen like the only time he's ever really shocked in the whole movie is just staring at like this like eccentric collection of guns I've always wondered how they got so how why the eighties movies have so many different kinds of guns in them. Right. I, I tried to find like a tax credit or something to justify it because there had to be some fiduciary reason as to why they had all those guns on set, but never could find out why. Well, I'll throw out um, Terminator, Uzi 9mm, same kind of idea. Lots of different guns there. Like the first thing he asked for is, of course, a laser-sighted, you know, 
yeah. phaser. Plasma <laughs> rifle, right? But um, I just love the, of course, the, the, the hitch there, of course, is the all the ammo is just sitting there on the counter. <laughs> so it's like, really? So yeah, I mean, Arnie, Arnie's a, a veteran at going into these places. Number two, I love Radon Chung and that uh, the one line of when she fires the rocket launcher finally, like, how did you do it? She said, I read the manual, you know. So it's kind of the <laughs> dig against men who don't read the instructions, but also how easy it is for even a woman to operate military-style rocket launchers. And they did I show the manual. He did right, grab it. It was right there. Even for a woman to operate it, she's... She can fly a plane. She can fly a plane. She can fire a rocket launcher. I know. I'm not. This is not my opinion. I'm, yeah. I know. I know the '80s. That's what they were telling us. They were like, "Listen, Ghost. We had to make it small enough so that small Vietnamese kids could shoot at each other." Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. That's why we had the we arm, had make, right? So every, the, the, what's that? Oh, it was called the law. Right? Yeah, the, the, the M72. That's not that one, but yeah, the uh, that that's like a Vietnam era. Like I guess it fired incendiary rounds. Okay. So not only did it, not only was it violent, but it kind of but it set your ass on fire. Well, since you are always the authority on these things, I want to know: Does that rocket launcher thing that is, that is in Commando does that exist? It does. It was a Vietnam. It was a Vietnam era okay. weapon, okay. but it wasn't. Uh, it's cumbersome. That, I mean, I've never I never saw one ever in real life or anything. That's the only that's the only time I ever really saw it was in that movie. Okay. And it was, and I don't think that's how it would operate. It would have set that shit on fucking fire. It would have like shot around that had napalm in it. It would have fucking tore your shit apart with an explosive and some napalm. Yeah, and napalm sticks like it gets really sticky, you know. So it, (laughs) you don't just you don't just walk out of that. You know what I mean? All right. Well, my favorite since uh, it's been ripped off. I have my second one, but I've got the third one as well, so I'm not too upset. But um, so the Bill Duke fight scene in the uh, in the hotel. I'm not taking the whole thing because that's a long sequence with a lot of funny stuff in it. I just love um, that Arnold hits him with an uppercut so hard that a six foot four dude that's like 300 pounds can fly up in the air a foot before he hits the ground. <laughs> that was a scene. That it, it's amazing. I uh, I've um, yeah, Bill Duke is is an absolute gentleman and a scholar i i I love him and in october i'm actually going out to la to interview him so which i'm really looking forward to but he yeah he's a massive guy he's like six foot four so just the fight scene between them i think is best summed up by ray dawn chan just going i'm fed up with this was it uh testosterone bullshit no yeah you guys eat too much red meat (laughs) yeah uh she's great but they are it's yeah the two of them just going at it it's it's, i think this was just before commando as well so joel silver clearly recognized something in bill duke and was like this guy is is it i'm taking him on the road with me yeah after reading your interview with him uh, i was inspired to go watch uh you know like a a live interview just to kind of see his uh, mannerisms and um you know you're right he's just so soft-spoken and you know um he's really struck he's really struggled to get the kind of roles that he wanted and i don't know i'm i'm glad for him i'm glad he's directing and, and making stuff hopefully that fulfills him and it yeah, was so exactly. nice to see him so young he looks so good in this movie he's wearing a suit he just looks so young and vigorous and strong you know and when you see him in Predator, he just he did, looks totally different. It, it just blew my mind. I was like, "Is that 
is that Bill Duke? And then it was like, oh, yeah, that's right. And then he guns the guy down with the Mac-10, but he just looked good. Yeah, and he looked, he, I mean, he's in so many good films over the uh, 80s, like Action Jackson and Bird on a Wire. And uh, But I think he was kind of like, everything I kind of spoke to him about, it's kind of once Hollywood will typecast you in those kinds of roles. And as a big six foot four black guy, he was like, Hollywood just wanted me to be uh, intimidating. And so you kind of have to create your own roles. And that's why he set up the Bill Duke Media Foundation, which helps kind of black actors and black filmmakers. And he's he's doing some amazing stuff. And he's primarily a director these days. But he doesn't just direct the films that you would assume he directs. He directed Sister Act 2, for God's sake. He is a man of <laughs> Of many talents, for sure. One line that in your uh, in your interview with him in your book, um, I really um, hit me. He he says something along the lines of, um, "I don't. I didn't want anymore to like to be. I don't want to be a big scary black guy. Like that shouldn't always be the the thing. Like I. That's what he was trying to get out of. Like this idea yeah. that just because he's big and black, he has to be horrifying and and dangerous or something like that." Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it is a it is a problem. But, you know, he he's created his own uh, success these days. And it, it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. OK, well, you're up for uh, scene oh, number two. Oh, let me jump in real quick, because I was going to say kudos to that couple who were fucking in the other room. Because if you look <laughs> to the left, there's a camera with a light on it. They were making a porno on the tripod. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Go back and look at it. I was like, oh, yeah, I've never noticed that before. That's uh that's a new one. I rewound it four or five times, and you know, each time I watched it, um, yeah, I saw it there. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Okay, uh, scene number two. Go for it, Ty. Um, it's probably it's probably the end scene where he motherfucker just out of the rubble with Jenny and his off the offset. Was it General Kirby? Goes, do you leave anything for us? He goes, just bodies. And then power stations, we fight for love, just kicks in. And Jenny runs to Ray Dawn Chong as if, <laughs> like, is this my new mummy? <laughs> and they just get in the plane as a big happy family, as if this is the most normal day in the world, and just fly off into the sunset. Yeah, why would they take the stolen floaty plane That's again? the best part. That's Because it's like... <laughs> It's like he's like he looks at him. And he's like, no chance. They walk in there, and he's like, I'm gonna take my daughter, my flight attendant. And we're gonna get on this stolen plane, and we're gonna fly back home on a, using a flight pan, plan that the FAA did not approve of. <laughs> Drop the mic. We just yeah. won. I, just oh, it was a, the best ending. Love it. That Bill Paxton tried to stop us from doing, and we just ignored poor old Bill back. Bill, uh, Bill Paxton. Came <laughs> over. Came over, man. All right. Well, you're up, uh, Leroy. Number two. Oh, he stole it from me. Yeah. Uh, God, that's such a good one, too. Okay, so I'm going to have to go with the uh, with the scene where he um, he picks up. He, he's he, First of all, it's like if you're a millennial, this had to be like what they call triggering, right? So, like, he's like he sees John Matrix. And so he's like, he flew, he's like, holy crap, this giant man is beating the hell out of like a million rena pigs. And he's like. He's like, checks his pockets. He's like, he's like, he looks at her, he goes, give me a quarter. 
give me a quarter. He just <laughs> rips her purse away, and he's just running as fast as he can. And then they cut to John Matrix just like, there's probably like a dozen dudes he's just already beaten up, and he's fighting another half a dozen more. And then he gets into the phone booth, and it's like the most futuristic-looking phone booth of all time, and he's trying to make a call. And then John Matrix, like, takes this inflatable tube of color mm-hmm. that's like that's like rubbery and somehow he's able to rip it but keep the air in it so that it's still functional and then he swings across the mall drops down on a stairwell runs over to the guy so then Sully is like got point blank range with a handgun and shooting at him and John Matrix just does not care <laughs> and he just starts like beating the crap out of the glass on that thing and then he just like picks it up he, just to prove how strong he is he he literally just picks up the entire tube with Sully with the with the steel phone uh in you know they they put they made him with steel so that you couldn't just bust him open and and he he picks all that up on his back and flips it over like a wrestler and he's just like what bro it was I, at that point you're just like this is the great is as a 5 year old kid you're like is this oh I forgot the other scene but anyway there's is is it not just the greatest movie of all time when you're 5 yeah. the answer is yes. yes yes it is I'm kind of concerned that you saw this at 5 I'm thinking maybe you you were a little bit too young I'm worried no, no. In, in my in my generation, I'll, I mean, I, I remember watching Terminator, all that stuff when you were a kid. It's great. I'm gonna I'm gonna quote you, Ty. Uh, in your uh, in in your book, you know, in in the opening there, you uh, you throw a shout out to your parents, and it says for introducing me to the world of cinema and for not paying too much attention to what I was watching. <laughs> it, Very is a, nice. it is a beautiful thing. It's uh, it's true. My parents. Uh, had a massive video collection and my mum was into a bit of everything she was a ma- really into musicals so me and my brother were brought up well both my brothers we we, we know an insane amount about Rogers and Hammerstein's musicals <laughs> and Doris Day movies I know all the lyrics to every seven brides for seven brothers nice. uh, so but at the same time she introduced us to like the Wizard of Oz um, all of the the old Ray Harryhausen monster movies like Jason and the Argonauts, uh, the 1933 King Kong. She basically just introduced us to everything. And then it was kind of right. And just decide what you like. And because of that, I think we just have like just a really good, diverse knowledge of films. I mean, I love action films, but it's just, you know, one part of all the stuff that our parents introduced us to. So it, I think it was only right that. I dedicate the book to them because I think without them, I wouldn't have been introduced to anywhere near as much as I was at such a young age. Love it. All right. Well, I'm, my last one, I'm going to throw two things out there. Actually, the scene is an easy, quick one. And it's just when he gets to the airfield, he punches the shit out of the guy. And then for some reason, he picks him up and he puts him in a closet. And the closet, he doesn't even bother to lock it. So it's almost like he just thinks someone else is going to come in. But they're not. I think it was just like a really bad, like practical joke. This dude's going to wake up in like 10 minutes after having his head bashed in, in the dark. And he's going to go, where the fuck am I? And he's going to fumble with the, the knob and open the closet because it wasn't locked anyway. And just be like, oh, they stole a plane and read my flight plans. Okay, that's it. That's, that's the one scene. What I love about this movie, and I think it's an overall thing, is it's a lot like Grand Theft Auto. Every time, like they... They get exactly. The, yeah, they get the Porsche. Okay, then they kill Duke, uh, so they're able to steal his jalopy. And then they go and they they have like a, a 
jeep at one point and then you know they steal the plane and you know it's just it's really it feels a lot like playing that game it's just the way it works this car gets a little bit fucked up you run over there punch someone in the face steal their car (laughs) yeah and then on top of that it's like he's like you know what i like about it the most he's like what the price (laughs) oh god that was fucking beautiful man yeah that's a great point like that opening scene with bill duke like, why did he steal the car in that way? Like he's, he, he goes inside all this trouble, just all this trouble, goes inside. He chooses one that's, like, inside the building. Like, he could have just said, hey, I want to test drive this one, just drove off with it, and that would have been it. It was, like, all about flash. Oh. You no, know, he was assassinating the, the salesman. Oh, okay. The, the salesman it, was one of the people they had to hit from the unit. Oh, see, I missed that, because he didn't look very tough. He, in fact, I thought he was the, the dude from Ghost Dog that played Sonny. <laughs> I had to look that up because I'm like, <laughs> who's that guy? But anyway, yeah, I, I missed, uh, uh, you know, the subtleties in this film. <laughs> Carrier pigeons. Carrier yeah. Passenger pigeons. Passenger pigeons. All right, we've made it full two full circles. Do you think, um, I'll just throw this back to to, uh, to Ty. Um, is there anything else you think we missed in this movie that is worth uh, bringing up? Um. Basically, it's uh, what what I want to bring up is Fernand Wells's outfit. So everyone <laughs> thinks he's wearing chainmail, and what I want to clarify, which is something that he clarified with me, is it's actually a stoker's vest, which is apparently a very heavy uh, vest that people who worked in boilers would use to kind of shovel in coal to protect them from the heat. So when they were filming that end fight scene, him and Arnie allegedly really went at it um, with gusto, not to hurt each other, but apparently they got hurt a few times. And it was boiling down there because it was a real uh, furnace and everything. Um, But apparently, yeah, he lost like a lot of weight just from sweating with that thing. Um, But... Yeah, it, it, I I think this film, for me, sticks out not just because of Arnie, but because of the wide range of villains that are in it, from Vernon Wells to Bill Duke to David Patrick Kelly. Uh, it, it, it's all about the action, but it's just all about the the whole level of craziness that this film represents. And I think having those villains who are so cartoonish and walk straight out of a comic book just give it that whole sense of hyper-realism that makes it one of uh, the most memorable films in Arnie's back catalogue. Nice. Uh, Leroy, anything else uh, uh, you think that uh, we've glossed over that would need some, some more uh, spark? There's one scene that epitomized the whole movie. Okay. And it's when he's gearing up after he's gone. He's oh, in yeah. restored the island. Oh, of course, yeah. And he's got his LBE and he stuffs it with every possible munition. He's got... He's got um, satchels uh, attached to it full of claymores. He's got grenades hanging from his D-rings. He's got knives everywhere. He's got shotgun shells all over. He's got gun. He's got he's got a shotgun. He's got uh, uh, an assault rifle. He's got uh, he's got a rocket launcher. He's he's just so weighted down that as he's as he's like slowly meandering through the jungle, like everything is just battle rattle. It's all just shaking like a couple of tatas you know making a martini it's just unbelievably gratuitous and beautiful and the music and the cut scenes they do when he's loading it up that's the movie yeah it's, it's it made magic. it made the it made the cover yeah exactly 
<laughs> oh, cool. Um, I yeah, I love it. I love all of the stuff we talked about. Um, I'll throw a couple things out that are in the back of my head. I watched this with Jana. She said, "What kind of grenades uh, cause people to um, eject themselves from springboards and do flips in the air?" I don't the know. Best <laughs> the best kind. The best kind. Yeah, yeah. This is the. This is what it is. Um, I would say the 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 ultimate like biggest thing that's wrong with it is the first thing that Ty brought up, and it's that he he really only gets hurt once, and it's when a grenade blows up like two feet from him. <laughs> it's the only time, and then he holds his side for a second, and he's good after that. Like yeah, his hand, he did the the, and he just kind of held it there, and uh, I guess the shrapnel disappeared out of his kidney or whatever. It's science. Yeah, but otherwise, you know, he's getting shot at directly over and over again, and he's just standing there. It, you said this once, Lee. Um, it's watching me play Grand Theft Auto that time. I'm just standing up on a bluff, and I'm just shooting the shit out of everybody and not getting hit. It's exactly what he did. It's where you get the idea that you can pull that kind of crap off. It's glorious. Glorious. All right. Well, uh, like we have been talking about this whole episode, Born to be Bad, check it out. Um, we've given you a few spoilers, but there are something like 25 interviews uh, that uh, um, are documented in it. So check it out. Uh, thanks a lot, Ty. My pleasure, guys. It's been real fun. Thanks. Absolutely. And Leroy, until next time. Thank you, buddy.